our world. Spoken into existence. The earth, sky, and us. Broken. Communities divided. People forgotten. But God is present. He is moving. He is redeeming. He is healing. He is restoring. Amen, amen. We worship a God who is making all things new again. Amen, church? He is good. Man, I love uh, worshiping with you guys. Uh, It is so good, and it is good to be with you today to rally around God's word and his truth and his presence among us and the fellowship we get to enjoy. Um, I'm excited today. How are you guys doing? You guys doing good? Good. Praise God. Hey, you're here. You made it. Um, my name is Ben. For those of you who are newer, and I have the privilege of serving here as the campus pastor and the associate pastor of Radiant, and it's a blessing. Um, I want to begin by talking about the year 1999. What a special year, right? Y2K. Remember that? Man, that was weird. Uh, but it was the Matrix came out in 99. That was a big deal. Uh, but today I want to begin by talking about uh, a piece of software, actually, that came out in 1999 that honestly I think changed the world and I don't say that lightly and of course I'm referring to the uh, the release of the peer-to-peer sharing software called Napster anyone Napster you guys remember that okay and it's later it's later counterparts Kaza LimeWire all right be honest show of hands how many of you guys had, had that software at least one point in time? Raise your hand up. Okay, you just indicted all yourself. You're in trouble, okay? Here's the thing about Napster. This revolutionized the world, I think, is the genesis of streaming and all of that. But basically what it was is it was called a sharing program, which basically meant you could put any file up and host it, and then someone else all across the globe could download that file. Sounds, you know, you know not too bad at first glance, right? Sharing files, no big deal. The problem is is that the files, that the vast majority of them, were actually copyrighted protected art, right? In the form of music and eventually in the form of movies. And so people were putting MP3s, they were putting uh, songs that were copyright and, you know, protected on the internet for everyone to grab whenever they would like, right? And Napster absolutely took off. Off, right? They got into legal trouble, trouble with Metallica back in the day. If you're old enough to remember any of that, I'm barely old enough for that. Um, but I myself, I'm just saying, I indulged. I'm just going to say it, right? Uh, I, my, my 
program of choice was Kaza and then LimeWire eventually. But I don't know. I, I think the songs I remember, like, downloading, like, Pour Some Sugar on Me. I don't know. Uh, like, Hanson, Umbop, you know what I'm saying? I get knocked down, but I get up again. Yeah. Who let the dogs out eventually? So come on, some of you, some of you old folks are like, no. Nah. But before, okay, before you older folks, you know, you more seasoned folks start to judge us, you know, younger people for doing this. I know you guys made mixtapes, okay? You hit record while the radio was playing. You're not, okay? And some of you, you know, put running the record backwards, you know who you are, okay? Anyway, the point is this. Uh, all of us, it seems like, the whole world suddenly was indulging and downloading stealing copyrighted music. It, it was as if the world one day woke up and said, yeah, you know, you know that whole stealing thing? We're okay with it now, you know? And, and we, we called it sharing, even though it actually was stealing. It was literally taking something that didn't belong to you that was for sale, right? And it's amazing, like stealing of all things, right? The most universal moral thing that all cultures agree to that live in community, like don't take things that don't belong to you. We all just kind of threw up our hands and said, nah, it's okay, <laughs> right? It was an incredible phenomenon. It still, of course, happens today with torrenting and things like that. But it's just fascinating. And it was such a problem that before uh, the movie would start on DVDs, you guys remember this? They'd show that little ad where it's like, you wouldn't steal a car, would you? So why would you pirate music, right? And it was super, like, heavy-handed and became a meme. But uh, you guys, you've seen this before. And, like, the old font, like, what is that? I don't even know. And, uh, but it was such a problem because so many people were pirating that they had to put out public service announcements to remind us not to steal things, right? <laughs> of all things, it's like, come on, we should probably know that by now. And what this phenomenon, I think, represents is a couple things in our culture. First, it represents uh, what we call the Enlightenment myth, which is basically that says, if you give people enough uh, information, they will make the logical, moral, good choice. If you present people with the right information, with good information, they will become good people. Not quite, okay? And it represents a second theory called the social contagion theory. And this is the idea that behaviors, whether they're good or they're bad, spread through networks of family and friends and neighbors and cities in a very similar way to a virus. So behaviors, good or bad, right? You think of World War II and the war effort. People were sacrificing. There was rations. Everyone chipped in to make this war effort happen, right? It spread through the communities. And largely, mostly people would say that was a positive thing. But the problem is that bad behaviors can also spread like a contagion through communities, right? You think every single time there's an alleged gas shortage, what do people end up going, what do they do? They rush to the gas pumps, right? And they freak out and they like fill milk jugs with gasoline, which is not a good idea. You know who you are, by the way, if that's you, okay? Stop it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but we see it either way, right? People freak out. And they rush and they do things, and it spreads. It's the social contagion theory. When it comes to Napster, and it comes to this idea that behaviors can spread, even bad behaviors, it makes us ask the question, what other things in our world have we just sort of collectively let slide? Right? If, if our culture could collectively be like, yeah, I'm stealing, not that big of a deal, we'll just call it sharing— the begs the question, what other things in our society and in our world have we just sort of kind of let slide? 
The reality is that if we are living human beings in this world, in this culture, we have the constant force of the world pressing in around us, asking us to be conformed. We are constantly being sucked in and assimilated to the host culture around us. Have you felt it? Welcome back to our uh, fourth and final sermon on Live No Lies. Have you guys been enjoying this so far? I know I have. Hopefully, yeah. Praise God, yeah. Um, Read the book. I just, I cannot uh, promote this book enough. I just love it. It's so good. So so much more content that we could possibly cover in four weeks. Um, But we are covering this, uh, it's based on a book called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. And what what this book aims to do is aims to highlight the three enemies of our soul. For over a thousand years, there's been a paradigm where Christian thinkers and theologians have summarized the categories, summarized the three enemies of our soul as being the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you've been here all four weeks, hopefully you got that memorized by now. But the three enemies all throughout scripture that we see are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all month long, I encourage you to go back and check it out online, both Pleasant Hill and Ankeny. Um, All month long, we kind of have a running theory of how these three enemies interplay with one another. And our working theory is that the devil plants deceptive ideas. And they're not just random deceptive ideas or lies, but these deceptive ideas play to our disordered desires of our flesh. That each of us have cravings, animalistic tendencies, desires, strong urges to do things for us. And the devil lies to us to get us to do those deceptive and those disordered desires. But it doesn't stop there. As if that wasn't bad enough, right? Not only that, but we also live in what Scripture calls the world. And what happens is that these disordered desires are actually normalized in a sinful society. They're popularized. In other words, it's the common phrase, no big deal, everybody is doing it. So that's kind of our working theory uh, all month long. And today, we're going to be talking about the third enemy of the soul, the world. The world. In the Greek, uh, the, the word for world is the word cosmos. You can see why, but uh, cosmos has a variety of different uh, definitions. Cosmos can mean the universe, which is, of course, where we get the word cosmos. Uh, Cosmos can mean uh, planet Earth, but cosmos can also mean humanity in general, right? Think of John 3.16. Many of you know it. For God so loved the, what? World that he gave us Jesus. So when it's referring to the world here, it's certainly not referring to the third enemy of the soul. Rather, it's referring to humanity. And that's an important point as we continue on today because um, we're going to go hard against the world, but we need to remember that we're not talking about humanity here. God so loves humanity, right? Flesh and blood. That's not the enemy that we're talking about. Rather, the enemy uh, that we're referring to uh, can be articulated in 1 John 2, 16, where it says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life— comes not from the Father, but from the world. Dallas Willard uh, has this definition for the world. Our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus, excuse me, and thus opposed to God. 
So it's the forces that are under the control of Satan and opposed to God. Our definition that we'll use for today, uh, and it's fill-in for your worship guide, I believe, as well, or it's there. Um, Our definition will come from Live No Lies. John Mark Comer writes, The world, or cosmos, is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. Put simply, it's the normalized things that we deal with every day. It's the values, the customs, the practices, and they become not only mainstream, but institutionalized, baked into the fabric of our society. But it's done so in a culture that's been corrupted by the twin sins, as he calls it, of rebellion against God. We don't need God. We don't want God. And the redefinition of good and evil. This is moral relativism for another word. That's our definition for today. Uh, Today we're going to be diving into John chapter 17. Do turn with me, if you could, John chapter 17, verse 13. Uh, This is in the New Testament, end of the Bible. Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Uh, You Feel free to just Google this. If you Google John 17, Bible Gateway, Bible.com, that sort of thing. But do get this in front of you, if you would. John 17, verse 13, a little bit of context. So, What we see here in this passage is that this is right before Jesus is arrested and eventually tried and crucified. And what we see here is that Jesus has gathered his disciples and he is actually, he's praying over his disciples. And not just the 12, but he's also praying over all who would believe in his name. So this is a prayer for us as well. Okay, you there? John 17, verse 13. Let's begin. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have full measure of my joy within them. That's important. Jesus prays for the full measure of his joy to be upon his disciples. That's amazing. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Elsewhere, John writes this regarding the world and believers in Christ and how they don't go together. 1 John 5, 19, he writes, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So it's not just that we live in a world that, like, you know, decides all of a sudden that stealing's okay. It's it's not just that humans are causing our own problems, which largely we do. But it's also that, according to Jesus, this world, our culture, our society, is actually under the dominion of the literal devil. Which is hard to kind of wrap our mind around. We think, how does that even work? But according to the writers of the New Testament and to Jesus himself... We are under the dominion and the control of the evil one. We need to think through about what that really means practically. Okay? Let's continue on. Uh, John 17, verse 15. Jesus, again, praying for the disciples. He says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. 
17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. There's a few things that we, I want to grab from this passage as it relates to how uh, we need to see ourselves as believers who live in this sinful society in the world around us, okay? And the first is this, in verse 15, we need to understand that Jesus has not taken us out of the world. In 18, it says instead, Jesus has actually sent us into the world, right? So many Christians, you know, we, we, when we realize we're living in a sinful society, and many of us have the tendency to just try and retreat out of the world. We surround ourselves with only uh, other believers, or we don't really have uh, non-Christian friends. We just kind of isolate, right? There's a story about this man. His name was Simeon the Stylite, and I could not believe the story about this guy. So he lived around 400 AD in modern-day Syria, and he was an ascetic. And he decided that he was not going to be corrupted by the world. He was not going to give in to society. And so he made the uh, choice, good or bad, to live on top of a pillar. Yes, here's a picture depicting Simeon the stylite, right? Here he is living on top of a pillar. That's him. You wonder how he ate? He had people from the town come in and give him food, hoist it up. I don't want to know how the waste was handled or anything like that, but... Check this out. This wasn't for like a month or two months. This wasn't for like a week. 37 years, Simeon the Stylite was living on top of a pillar. 37 years, all so that he wouldn't get corrupted by the world. And of course, people like flock to him because they're like, what is the deal with this guy? Which is amazing, right? But here's the thing. This wasn't just a one-off instance. He actually inspired copycats. There was a man named Olypius. He said, oh, 37 years? That's cool. I'm going to do 67 years on top of a pillar. That, come on, that's hilarious. What on earth is this guy doing? 67 years of living so that he wouldn't be corrupted by the spiritual forces of the world. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. I'm not going to judge that because, oh my goodness, that takes some discipline, all right? But, but Jesus said, I, I'm not taking them out of the world. I'm sending them into the world. You see the difference? We are to be a light in a city on a hill. Jesus didn't want us to retreat he sent us in. But, verse 16, this is the second thing we need to understand, is that Jesus says, they are not of the world. Believers are not of the world. This is where you've heard the phrase, perhaps, we're in the world, but not of it. It comes from this passage. We are not of the world. We, are, we do not succumb to the world. We are not made of the same essence of the world. We are not uh, dominized by the world. You see, Jesus knows that the world is under the control of the evil one, he says. Under the control of the devil. Its values, its ethics, its morality, they're, they're off. They are counter to the kingdom of God. To Jesus' way in his world. And so one of your fill-ins for today is we need to realize that the world acts as an echo chamber. Telling the flesh exactly what it wants to hear. You know what an echo chamber is, right? It's echo chamber is something you speak out loud, and then all you hear is the voices that sound a lot like yours, right? So, for instance, the world acts like an echo chamber. The world shouts out, and it says, stealing is now okay, 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 right? <laughs> it tells us what we want to hear. We want free music. We're cheap. I'm frugal. I get it, right? 
pour some sugar on me. I downloaded a lot, right? But here's the thing. I'm going to get like a lawsuit and come against me. This is live streaming. It's probably a bad idea. But the point is the world acts like an echo chamber, and none of us are immune to it. It tells the flesh exactly what it wants to hear. And so what does Jesus say, verse 17? This is something we need to understand about our role as we live in the world. 17, Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. 19, he says, that they too may be truly sanctified. That is Jesus' prayer for us, that we would be sanctified. It's a big word. It's the word hagios in the Greek, which is rooted in the word holy, set apart, different. It's the idea of sanctification is that we reject sin more and more in our lives, and we seek and yearn for Christ-likeness, to be made and conformed into the image of God. There's a, there's a line of theology, uh, this isn't in my notes, but there's a line of theology that says, you know, we're just doomed and destined to sin and thought, word, and deed every single day. We're not going to have really victory over it. Why even try? And Jesus himself says, his prayer is that we would be truly sanctified, that we would be made more and more in the idea of holiness, that sin be- can become less desirable, that we can actually walk further and further in Christ-likeness. Jesus raised out of the, out of the grave. We know that, right? We don't have to succumb to sin in thought, word, and deed every day. We can have victory through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? That is the hope of the gospel. And that is the prayer that Jesus prayed over us, that we would be truly sanctified as well. So how does a follower of Jesus in today's day and age live in the world but not be of it? I think part of the answer is sanctification. Don't shy away from that big theological term. Sanctification is a beautiful word. Study it. Enjoy it. Being set apart in and made holy through it. Now, there have been a lot of different versions of what sanctification means uh, throughout the ages, right? Back uh, 60, 70, 80 years ago, this meant uh, a very strict sort of um, management of people's behaviors, right? You think of, you know, the, the movement against people playing any sort of cards or going to movies, right? Dancing, forbidden, right? You, movie Dirty Dancing is based on that, I think, right? I haven't seen it. Kevin Bacon? I'll download it later. Just kidding. <laughs> no, no, I won't. Uh, <laughs> those days are behind me. Uh, but, you, yeah, dancing was no good, right? Drinking, smoking, absolutely not, right? And those were, you know, it was, it was kind of behavior management. It was sort of a form of legalism. Now, let me be clear. All of those things can absolutely lead you to sin, right? We've all been in seedy environments where those things are happening. So that's not what I'm trying to say. But the point is is that we focused on external behavior. Now, again, to be clear, behavior can absolutely lead to transformation. But the thing I want us to understand is that as believers living in the world, we're not called to just behave different. We're called to be different. We're not called to just behave differently. That's a form of legalism. The Pharisees had that down. They were clean on the outside. They were beautiful, polished on the outside. But inside, what were they? They were dead men with rotting bones. Instead, we are called to be different. This is the idea of transformation. This is the idea of being made and sanctified in Christ-likeness. That is the hope that the believer has living in the world. John Mark Homer puts it this way, every follower of Jesus in every culture has to constantly ask the question, in what ways have I been assimilated into the host culture? 
Where have I drifted from my identity and inheritance? All of us need to be willing to ask that question. In what ways have I even unintentionally been assimilated into the culture around me, living like they do? And again, I want to be clear about something. This is not an us versus them sort of sermon, right? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This is not like, you know, name some enemy or whoever, you know, your political opposition or whatever. Like, that's, that's not what this is. We're talking about the spiritual forces of evil, the corrupt society that we live in. I want to emphasize that. What we need to realize, church, is that by default, people are being deformed into the image of the world and its ruler, which is the devil, and not into the image of Christ. We fight assimilation with sanctification. But this wasn't as noticeable as it was in the earlier days, or at least it's happening faster than it was in the past, right? Uh, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago, we lived in a largely Christianized culture. I don't think there can truly be a Christian culture, but we were Christianized, right? By and large, uh, people went to church, and there was kind of an agreed-upon moral system and values, for good or for bad, right? And, uh, we, uh, but there was still the ways of the world and the culture and, and America and all of that. And so we were Christianized. We didn't really feel the tug and the pull of the world as much. But researchers are saying that we are now in a post-Christian society. That we are reacting against that Christianized society, its morals, its values, its restraints on morality. It's sort of like the adolescent, uh, adolescent child who still lives in their parents' basement, but like still rebels against them and gets mad at them, you know what I mean? That's kind of the societal moment that we're in. Where we're still trying to have some, some of the morals and the values of Christ, but we're rejecting religion and rejecting the church and rejecting everything that comes with it. We're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So, th- and things are moving faster and faster. I think there's, uh, right now, we're living in a digital age, and the danger that we live in is the, the crazy breakneck uh, pace of trends in our society. If you're on social media, or even if you watch the news, um, trends have just become almost, it seems, everything. And maybe you, uh, some of you aren't living in this day-to-day. And I'm not about to, you know, go on a rant against TikTok, although I could. Uh, <laughs> Because I, I've, I've done this too, right? Trends can be fun. I remember getting the youth, youth group together and doing the Harlem Shake. Remember that? It was fun for like two minutes, right? Uh, planking. Anyone remember planking? It was pretty cool. Uh, and how about uh, little, maybe a little bit more dangerous trends like Tide Pods? Remember that whole thing? People were eating Tide Pods. Gen Z, you're never going to live that down. I'm sorry. Like, that was nuts, okay? Um, but it's not just that. It's also fashion trends, right? I, I feel like in the last five years, we like blazed through 70s fashion, 80s fashion. I think we're in 90s fashion now, like low-cut jeans and the 2000s. I don't know. I, I haven't researched this at all. I know nothing about fashion. But we're blazing through it at breakneck speed. In fact, researchers are saying that trends are going so fast that people can't keep up. And then there's subtrends that branch off of that largely because of social media. And what's amazing is that it's having real-world consequences. For instance, in the last 20 years, clothing waste has doubled. Doubled in the last 20 years because things are just trending so fast and everyone has to have the next greatest thing. Trends can be absolutely dangerous for our society. And not just physical uh, dangers like eating Tide Pods or the blackout challenge where kids are um, cutting off their own air supply. It's been around for decades and is horrible. 
not just physical dangers, but environmental, change, uh, environmental dangers like fashion trends. But it's so much more than even that. There is an assault on truth when it comes to trends. Irene DiResta um, at Stanford Internet Observatory, she's a researcher, she has this quote that says, if you can trend it, you can make it true. If you can trend it, you can make it true. And we see this over and over and over again. The problem is that the majority is often wrong. The majority is often wrong. Eugene Peterson wrote, crowds lie. The more people, the less truth. I wonder if that's like part of the reason uh, the gospel writers gave us the story of Barabbas when Jesus was being tried. Do you remember that? The crowds just like turned their brain off and they're like, yeah, we want Barabbas instead. Crucify Jesus, right? Crowds lie. When people get together, it's not good like that. You heard the old adage, if everyone was jumping off a bridge, would you? Well, social contagion theory says, yeah, they just might. If everyone was stealing, would you? We did. (laughs) The idea of everybody's doing it is the danger. This is the world in a nutshell. And when the pace of life and trends come and go so incredibly fast that you can't even keep up with it, it's so easy to just get swept up in it without doing any sort of critical thinking. And all of a sudden, we realize that we're participating in lies and things that are not healthy and are actually destroying us. You should look at the statistics on TikTok. And again, I feel like such an old guy, right, who is anti-fun, which I kind of am. But like just, it's nuts. And I never thought I'd stand up here and say that, but it's just not good. Here's my point. Gary Brashears wrote it this way. The world is Satan's domain where his authority and values reign. Though his deception makes it hard to realize, if you are of the world, then it all just seems right. It all just seems right. First John 2, 15 through 17 says this, though. Do not love the world. Or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Trends, they'll come and go. They'll pass away. This post-Christian society that we are living in, it'll move on. Culture changes its mind all the time. It's fickle. You think of all the things that culture just kind of changed its mind on in the last 30 years. The post-Christian world's going to move on, but those who do the will of God, they live forever. These three things remain. So, I know it's heavy today. I know it feels like a lot of weight. The reality is you're already feeling the weight every single day. In your workplaces, schools, you name it. You feel this, and we need to pay attention to it. So how do we, Radiant Church, living today, 
in this city, how do we fight back against the tides of public opinion and the forces of this world? How do we live in a society where it seems like everybody is doing it and they're not even thinking about why they're doing it or if it's even good? How do we live surrounded in our workplaces with with people who just aren't even paying attention? Well, I think the short, simple answer is the church. I think it's the church. There's been so many words and accusations brought against the church in the last many years, and some of them, you know, those bruises we've earned ourselves, but man, there is just such a dark movement coming against God's holy bride. It's so alarming. The way we survive in this current age is with one another. Jesus said these words, praying to the Father for us, verse 20, John uh, chapter 17. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning the twelve. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Jesus' prayer is that we would fight the world together as one. That we would do it together. That we wouldn't be like Simeon the stylite. That we wouldn't just retreat and get on top of a pillar and just say, nope, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing the world. But rather we would rally together in community. There is no such thing as a private faith. We need one another. That is the way Christ intended his bride to work. I love this quote from John Tyson. He's a pastor out uh, in New York. This is so rich. He writes, a Christian community, that's a church, a Christian community is a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. It's not just that we are a stubborn, stubbornly uh, loyal group of people forming relationships, nodding our lives, interweaving them together as a church for ourselves. It's that we're doing it for the renewal of the world. We are called to be a blessing in the community. We've been talking about that over and over and over again. It's not just, it's just so that we can come together and feel good about ourselves. It's so that we can come together and examine the deep wounds and the sins and the flaws that reside in our own flesh and go to war against it. We start with ourselves, with inward examination. Be like, in what ways am I living like the world? And we encourage one another. Why? Not just so that we can be a holy huddle, but so that we can renew and bless the world. That we can say, as it is in heaven, Lord, would you pour it out on our world around us. We are the salt of the earth. We are a city on a hill. We are a lamp on a stand. May we never think that our job is just to retreat and hunker down and live in holiness just for ourselves. But man, it is so that we can bless the world with God's intended design to share the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord and that his kingdom far supersedes all of the nihilism and the moral relativity and the secularism and the humanism and all that stuff that just is not working. That there is a better way, that he is truth. He said that. He said, I am the truth and that his way is better and his way is good. 
That's the hope of why we do what we do. That's the purpose of the church. Amen? That is who we are. James writes, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. How do we overcome as a church? How do we overcome the powers of the world? How do we keep ourselves from being corrupted and polluted and influenced and assimilated into our world? There's three quick things I want to walk through. First and foremost, as a church and as a body, we must discern Jesus' truth from the devil's lies. We come together in community and say, no, nah, that doesn't sound like truth. That's not found in God's word. That sounds like a lie. Let me pray for you. Let me rally around you. Let me speak some truth into you. We discern it together. Number two, we help one another override our flesh by the Spirit, praying for one another. We, are not, we don't just have to succumb to our disordered desires. We can help each other out. And third and finally, as a church, we must form a robust community of deep relationships that functions as a counterculture to the world. A counterculture. Fighting back, pushing back with one another. I really do believe that as, um, as believers in Christ, that we all kind of have to arrive at this point. And we all have to just kind of get to the conclusion that says, I don't know that I'll ever be like the world. I don't know that I'll ever really fit in. I don't know that this pressure that I'm feeling to stand up for what's right, I don't know that that will ever go away. It's okay that I might never be popular or have a ton of influence or whatever it is. We kind of have to just reach that conclusion that says, it's just going to feel like this. It's going to feel like a struggle. Because if we don't reach that conclusion, we're always going to be drawn back in. It's always going to tempt us. As a body of believers, when the world insists on living lies, the church resists by being washed in truth. When the world insists on hedonism, pleasure, do whatever makes you feel good, we are a people of holiness. When the world insists on chaos, we, the church, are to be a people of order. When the world promotes individualism and isolation, we are the people of community and love. We are the people that keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. And so the question I want to leave you with is this. In what ways are you feeling the tug? In what ways are you feeling the pull? be assimilated into the world in its customs and its practices and its rituals and the ways and the things that it says are right and permissible? What ways have you given in because everybody's doing it? It may not be something as obvious as stealing or stealing music or sharing or whatever you want to call it, but what about the things that you watch? What about the ways you talk about your coworker or your boss? What about the ways that you treat your political opponent? What about the ways that you handle tension and conflict within the body? Are there ways where you, if you're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, 
Are there ways that we've assimilated? We handle things the way that the world handles it. And may Christ be calling us back to sanctification, to be set apart, to be the called out ones. John 16, 20, Jesus says to each and every one of us, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. I pray that each of us would pursue and go after Christ's prayer for us where he says that we may have the full measure of joy that Jesus has. The full measure of joy. My prayer for this church and this body as we wrap up this sermon series and as we move on from here, my prayer is that you would stay with your church through thick or thin, for better or for worse. My prayer is that we would live in a thick web of interdependent relationships. My prayer is that we would defy individualism, that we would say no to isolationism. We wouldn't just live life privately, but rather we would surrender our own autonomy for the sake of love. I pray that we would place ourselves in the constraint of community, that we would be a people who are willing to give up our preferences. Say it doesn't matter what the music is like, it doesn't matter if the teaching is top notch, it doesn't matter if someone rubs me the wrong way or if they look like uh, differently than me or they vote differently than me, it doesn't matter. I'm giving up my preferences and my opinions for the sake of agape, sacrificial love with one another because Jesus prayed that they would be one as he and the Father are one unity. My prayer is that we would continue to eat the bread of life, drink the cup of God, that we would ingest Jesus, that we would be people to be quick to repent over and over again, that we would be a people who are pursuing sanctification, that when the entire world says, nah, it's okay, we are the people that say, I, it just isn't. We can't go there have to live differently, not just behave differently, but we have to be different. My prayer for this group, for this body, you in this room and online and around us, my prayer is that when we get hurt and when we hurt others, we allow forgiveness to be our guide. We remember that our deepest wounds but also our greatest healing comes from people in our church. That God is always eager to reconcile and he's always eager to heal whatever it is we've been through. May we be a people who live in an alternative society, that we be formed into apprenticeship to Jesus, not loving sensuality or the flesh, that we would love one another as Jesus defined love, sacrificially, that we would will the good of others above ourselves, that when the world is screaming the church is bad and outdated and antiquated and irrelevant and bigoted or whatever it is, we would be a people that say, yeah, I, I get it, 
but that's not us. That we would press into Christ's likeness. That we would reject lies, press into truth, starting with our own flaws, our own sins, the ways we just don't measure up, that we'd confess it freely to one another because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no condemnation. May we be a church through and through. That's how we'll we'll survive. And not just survive, but that's how we'll thrive. And that's how the world will see that there's a God who loves them. That God so loved people, humanity, that he gave his only son. That's our message. May we exemplify that in everything we do. Let's pray.